Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we assess fast-moving developments from the battlefield, dive deeper into the perceptions and political impact of the counter-offensive, and catch up with our regular host, David Knowles, on his journey to Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 15th of June, one year and 111 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by Maidna Nanu from our foreign desk, former Ukrainian MP and regular on the podcast, Aliona Halivko, and calling in from his convoy, David Knowles. I started, however, with the significant developments in the military and political spheres over the past 24 hours. Ukrainian forces continued counteroffensive operations in at least three directions and made gains yesterday. That's according to analysis from the Institute for the Study of War. Ukrainian Deputy Defence Minister Hanna Malia stated that Ukrainian troops have advanced between 200 to 500 metres in unspecified sectors of the Bakhmut front and 300 to 350 metres in unspecified parts of the Zaporizhia front. Now, interestingly, Russian military bloggers report that Ukrainian forces are indeed continuing attacks on the northwestern north eastern and southwestern outskirts of Bakhmut. Ukrainian and Russian sources additionally reported yesterday that fighting continued in western Donetsk Oblast, particularly around Makarivka and in western Zaporizhia, south of Orykiv. Now, there have also been reports from Russian sources of a major incident near Krimina in Luhansk, where Ukrainian forces allegedly struck a division of the 20th Combined Arms Army while they were waiting for their commander to give a speech. One blogger suggested that the reported HIMARS strike killed around 100 Russian personnel and wounded a further 100, although this hasn't been independently confirmed. And those who are looking for evidence of this have not yet found anything definitive. So, as I say, treat that with caution. But nonetheless, there is a lot of chatter about this this morning. Elsewhere, Ukrainian forces claim to have intercepted one cruise missile and 20 explosive drones launched by Russia in its latest nighttime attack. But three other missiles struck 
industrial installations in the centre east of Ukraine. Russia claims to have downed nine drones over the Crimean Peninsula, according to its Moscow-installed governor there. I'll read a quote from him. Last night and this morning, nine drones were detected above the Republic of Crimea territory. Six drones were shot down by air defence forces, while three others were deactivated before hitting the ground. He added there were no victims and said that one of the drones exploded in a village in the centre of the peninsula, breaking windows in several homes. Now, again, this hasn't been independently verified, but there is indeed evidence that these kind of attacks have certainly taken place in recent days. So if this has happened here, it wouldn't come as a great surprise. Now, the other major military development, one that does bleed into the political realm more overtly than usual, is that the right-hand man of Chechnyan warlord Ramzan Kadyrov, and one of the most dangerous men in Chechnya, has been reportedly wounded, perhaps killed, in a missile strike directly south of Ukraine's major counter-offensive thrust. Adam Delihanov, a notorious Chechnyan member of the Russian parliament, was reportedly hit in an attack in the city of Primorsk on Ukraine's south coast. Now, a Russian TV channel owned by the defence ministry confirmed that he had been wounded in what would be the highest profile casualty of the Russian invasion. He previously posed among the war-damaged remains of Mariupol at the end of the two-month-long siege to take it. Uh, He's long been in the spotlight. His taste for violence first surfaced in 2013 when he got into a fistfight with another member of the Russian parliament. His rival there admitted that he stopped fighting after uh, the Chechnyan politician dropped a golden handgun to the floor. That's a direct quote, quite extraordinary. Uh, Members of a military unit under his control plotted and killed Boris Nimtsov, an opposition leader outside the Kremlin wall in 2015. Hugely important event, that one that I think led to a lot of observers at the time thinking that something very dark was happening in Russia indeed at that point, a deliberate and coordinated attempt to eradicate the senior opposition figures who had materialised in recent years. Now, the men were convicted by a Russian court, but investigators never questioned him personally and denied any involvement. Now, he's also purported to have been involved in a wave of violent attacks and killings of gay people in Chechnya in 2018. Now, Kadyrov in an extraordinary telegram post yesterday, called on the Ukrainian government to share information about his missing ally, saying that he had had trouble in contacting him directly. Quote, I'm asking the Ukrainian intelligence to share information about where and which positions they hit so that I can find my dear brother. And then he promised a generous reward. Now, bizarrely, before the opening of a session of the Russian parliament on Wednesday morning, the Speaker of the State, Duma, Uh, said that the Chechnyan politician was fine and that he'd just spoke to him. But then, of course, as the news filtered through that he was missing and had been missing for several hours, people began to doubt that. Now, Dmitry Peskov, spokesman for the Kremlin, of course, told Russian news agencies that the Kremlin is gravely concerned to hear the news reports that he is missing, um, but uh, has not sort of gone any further than that in confirming or denying it. They say, we worry for a hero of Russia, making reference to his military award, which he received after the siege of Mariupol and say they look forward to updated information as soon as we know what has happened. 
Now, staying with Russian politics, the lower house of the Russian parliament has given initial backing to legislation that will allow the country's defence ministry to sign contracts with suspected or convicted criminals to fight in Ukraine. That's according to the TAS news agency. So Russia's defence ministry is looking, obviously, to recruit more soldiers more than 15 months into the war. And under the proposed changes, a contract could be concluded with someone being investigated for committing a crime, who, in having their case heard in court or after they've been convicted but before the verdict takes legal effect according to the database of the lower house of russia's parliament whilst those convicted of sexual crimes treason terrorism or extremism wouldn't be able to sign up i should hope not those who do sign up would be exempt from criminal liability upon the completion of their contract or if they receive awards for their combat prowess now, as far, I mean, this is an extraordinary story in the nature of a Russian, a Western army, if we can describe the Russian army as that, is recruiting criminals overtly now. It used to be happening under the banner of these private military enterprises, now doing it overtly in and of itself. That's shocking and I think is exceedingly revealing about the nature of the Russian state as it is now, but also how desperate they are becoming. But not only that, I think it should be read as an attempt for the country itself to try and, or the state itself, should I say, to try and reclaim, try and claw back some of that power that is given to private contractors like the Wagner Group and indeed individuals like Prigozhin. I think this should be seen as a power grab to try and get some of the benefits of these uh, sort of recruits, these um, uh, individuals who are willing to fight if it means their prison sentences are reduced or the slate is wiped clean, but with them being more in direct control without some of the negative consequences that we've seen in recent months of uh, these units operating in a way that is really threatening the Russian military in the sense of how they attack publicly what the Russian military has done, but also, of course, alluding to the the way the state has operated this war. So a very interesting story. Now, the other interesting development is that Russia's Central Election Commission is set the date for regional elections in four Ukrainian provinces that Moscow claims to have annexed. The date is the September the 10th, coinciding with votes in other Russian regions. Now, Taz cites the election chief as saying that Russia's defence ministry and Federal Security Service consider it possible to hold the votes in September. But to reiterate, Russia does not fully control the Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia and Herzon regions in eastern and southern Ukraine. And fighting is ongoing in all four of them. This is clearly an attempt to solidify the idea domestically and internationally that those regions are Russian, not Ukrainian. Yet, as I mentioned yesterday, the very fact that fighting is taking place there, with some of the villages being liberated in recent days in some of those regions, is itself significant for undermining Russia's claims to those territories. And I spoke yesterday about the remarks of the Ukrainian ambassador to the United Kingdom on emphasising the political importance of the liberation of these small villages. And I thought it was a very interesting point. So I'd point listeners to that episode where we go into a little bit more detail on that. Now, lastly, just a very quick update on the flooded Hezon region. We understand that water levels have receded by another 32 centimetres, but that 28 settlements remain flooded. The images are extraordinary. My words can't do them justice, so I just recommend that you look at them. Rafael Grossi, the UN nuclear chief, has now arrived at Zaporizhia, though that was only a few hours ago at the time of recording, so we've heard nothing more from this yet, but there is a photograph that has been released of him arriving there, so updates as soon as we get anything from that. Now, Maidner, you've been covering the live blog today. Thank you very much for dashing over. I note that there are some interesting diplomatic developments, including the latest Ramstein summit. So let's start there. What are you hearing? 
Yes, so this is the 13th meeting of the Ukraine Defence Contact Group, or the Ramstein Group, as you say, and that's meeting in Brussels today. And you'll remember that this was set up last year by Washington to coordinate Western aid for Kyiv. So there's lots of defence ministers from more than 50 countries or so that are meeting and discussing everything. And Lloyd Austin, who is the US Defence Secretary, has called on Kyiv's allies to dig deep to provide more arms and ammunition to fight Russia's invasion, particularly for air defences. And he you know, has really emphasised that Kyiv needs both short-term and long-term support as the war is a marathon, not a sprint. And obviously, Alexei Reznikov, who is Ukraine's defence minister, is there and he's expected to brief counterparts on Ukraine's ongoing counteroffensive. And he's tweeted about this and he said, started my day with a meeting with my colleague and great friend Lloyd Austin. So, yeah, I'm sure there'll be lots of developments to come there today. Thanks, Maidna. Now, I understand we've also got some updates on military donations to Ukraine. Yes, that's right. So there's lots of discussions around artillery shells. So Norway and Denmark have agreed to donate an additional 9,000 rounds of artillery to Ukraine. And Norway has said it's going to provide the shells and Denmark is going to donate fuses and propellant charges. And Norway's also going to donate 7,000 rounds from its own stocks, which have already been sent to Ukraine. And Japan has also said it's in talks. Well, they haven't said it. The Wall Street Journal has reported that Japan's in talks to provide artillery shells to the US to bolster stocks for Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russia. And they're considering supplying 155mm artillery shells under a 2016 pact. So yeah, that's another one to watch out for. Yes, it's really interesting that seeing the way in which Japan once again are leveraging their support and increasing their support for Ukraine at this pivotal moment. And as I say, we do intend to do a deep dive into Japan and its shifting tides politically in this war in another episode. Now, for your last story, Maidner, an interesting one for our many Australian listeners. What's all this about the Russian embassy? So this is the news that Australia has blocked Russia from building a new embassy in Canberra after intelligence officials warned that it posed a spying risk and a security threat. Now, this has been like an ongoing thing. So Russia holds the lease for a parcel of land, which is about 400 metres or so from Australia's parliamentary precinct. So it's basically in the shadow of Australia's parliament house. And it's been laying, Russia's been laying the foundations for a while for a new embassy building in Canberra. And the Australian government have been trying to block the development in the courts and it failed to do so. So now it has passed a new law that's specifically halting the construction of this second embassy building. And Anthony Albanese, who's the Australian prime minister, said that the laws were very quickly pulled together following a meeting of Australia's National Security Committee. And it said that the governments received very clear security advice as to the risk posed by a new... Russian presence so close to Parliament House. And these laws were passed with bipartisan support and they don't stop Russia from having a diplomatic footprint in Australia, but it just means that they can't build a building so close to Parliament. And the Kremlin's responded quite predictably and it said that, to our regret, Australia diligently continues to follow the path created by the, what it says is the authors of the Russophobic hysteria.
Thanks, Maida. I'll let you get back to the live blog, which I know, as I say, you're covering today. And it's always great to be able to do updates on what's happening in Australia, because as I say, I know we have many, many listeners over there. So thank you to all of you. Now, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the podcast former Ukrainian MP Aliona Livko. Aliona, thank you so much for joining us again. Since you were last on the podcast, we have obviously seen the launch of the long-awaited counter-offensive what are your thoughts on what we've seen so far? Francis, thank you so much. It's lovely to be back. The counteroffensive has indeed begun, and I hear a lot of feedback from the soldiers on the front line, which is quite interesting. Many policymakers in Ukraine, actually the ones who are not immediately attached to the defense industry, the defense ministry, they don't really know what's happening, so the information is closely guarded, but As much as we can get from open sources intelligence and all the reporting from the West, some of the Ukrainians are even looking up to that. So it's very interesting to see that the advances are indeed happening in the East, going towards the South. I think that's what we were expecting perhaps at the beginning of the year when everyone was talking about spring counteroffensive, which was postponed A, due to lack of ammunition and Western artillery, and B, of course, the weather conditions were not ideal. And even speaking to my brother, who's further up north on the eastern flank on the battlefield at the moment, he is still talking about lots of months and difficulties in in moving around that area, in the forest especially, because the ground is still quite wet. So I think as the summer comes in and the ground dries up, we will see the movements of heavy artillery intensified. I think Reuters has reported today that only three out of 12 mechanized brigades are operating on the battlefield in the war theater of Ukraine along all of the front line. We can definitely see that the 93rd mechanized brigade, which is somewhat a legend now in Ukraine, it it grew immensely, including because they, were, they managed to take a lot of uh, Russian ar- artillery in, in its time, and they're quite successful in the battlefield. They are now moving on the eastern flank towards south. So we are expecting to see some movements going towards Birdansk, towards Militopol. Now, interestingly enough, I think you mentioned this briefly about Russia reactivating its air force. Um, that is indeed true. I think they can't really rely on much artillery or professional soldiers and troops as there is going to be no mobilization as per Putin's latest remarks, which I think he made a day or two ago, talking about, you know, Ukraine is failing, so we don't need any mobilization. We will get, coincidentally, it appeared Ukrainians from Russian soil, that's what he calls uh, Ukraine now as per his old narratives. But he did confirm, I suppose, to the Russian audience that there is no mobilization coming, at least for now. So that's reassuring to hear. But they are reinforcing their air force. We have seen 28 new helicopters relocated into Birdansk airfield, the occupied city of Birdansk, on the coast of Azovsi. So I think that will happen or has already happened in response to the activation of Ukrainian attacks on the occupied lands, including Crimea and 
uh, the shore of the Azov Sea. So that is somewhat troubling. I do hear from soldiers on the front line that they are seeing reactivated air force. The air defense of Ukraine is working brilliantly, especially with the cruise missiles that they're trying to knock down every night, the cruise missiles that are flying towards Odessa and Sume and all of the other cities and, and critical civilian infrastructure that was targeted overnight. So I think we need to observe that and need to watch it carefully. I think that also comes, that intensification of Russian Air Force comes amidst the jet fighter coalition and all the trainings that are now underway in Poland and in other countries in the UK and France, I believe as well, where Ukrainian pilots are getting trained to fly F-16s. So I'm sure that they're trying to prepare for that upcoming air battle, which will probably start not earlier than autumn, uh, but still summer, I believe, will be quite intense on, on Ukrainian battlefield. Thanks, Alioda. Now, just staying on the counteroffensive for a moment, where do you stand on the idea that Ukraine is in some senses a victim of its own success, that many people expect in this counteroffensive or expected huge swathes of territory to be liberated like we saw last year? Do you think that there is a bit of a perception problem that could have political ramifications for Ukraine in the coming months? This is definitely a, a, a new world war that's being played out on social media and everyone can basically watch it live. If you have enough of sources of information open at one time, you can watch events trans- unfold on Telegram. You can see them on Twitter. You can see them play out on YouTube, various experts, military, former soldiers, former political prisoners of war telling their stories about how and what is happening. So the world is watching this war live. And it's someone turned into, you know, it's, it's going to sound terrible, but it is a form of a reality show that perhaps entertains many listeners and viewers across the world, especially the Western audience, who unfortunately, due to the enormous amount of information that constantly is going towards them, the attention span is quite short. So that results in, into people expecting something very quick. And we've seen that even with acceleration and the growth of social media when we've gone from longer platforms, longer texts, longer videos into snapshots, stories, 40-second videos, etc. And the same goes with something that the whole world is watching. A, you need to constantly keep their attention up. It is, at the end of the day, a hybrid warfare with informational strong aspect in it. So any reports of victories, they are extremely important to, to keep the momentum going, to keep the support going, and to sustain that support. Because inevitably, the support of societies translates into the support of governments and certain decisions that are being made in terms of spending, ammunition supply, etc., and even political decisions and security guarantees and NATO membership, all of that. So we do understand very humbly that that is the world we live in and we need to address that informational space as well. On the other hand, it's still a physical, atrocious ground battle. It's still that. It still costs lives. Um, It takes a lot of movement, preparation and just physical effort to leave this war. So I think on the other hand, Ukrainians, as much as they try to sustain the momentum in the informational sphere and understand the expectations, no one is really stressing too much about people not 
understanding that the war takes time, that the battlefield is dynamic. That you know, at the end of the day, it's a it, it's a fight. Uh, you go out into the field against deadly weapons, against soldiers, and you can't just you know snap your fingers. It's it's not one of your video games where the enemy is dead, and and you prevail. It is a constant effort, and it costs human lives most importantly. And one, I think, crucial thing for me as a Ukrainian to see coming out of Soviet legacy, where human life wasn't worth much, and we can still let, let still see that legacy being played out in Russia, is in Ukraine. Human life is actually extremely valuable, and it's it's reassuring to see that the military command is doing as much as they can and make all the necessary decisions to preserve the life. And that was one of the reasons why the counteroffensive got postponed, because we were waiting for sufficient supply of the weapons and artillery and air defense to be able to preserve our troops, to preserve our boys and girls who were there on the front line. So to answer your question, in short, we do understand the risks. We understand that the world is watching. But on the other hand, we also know that the reason why Ukraine is supported so broadly and widely is because people can relate and people care about human beings getting attacked unprovoked with this aggression and, and they understand that human life is on the line. So I'm sure that we will have as much time as we need to gain any successes that we possibly can. That's very interesting. And just to chime with that, I think it has been noteworthy how many people expected by now for there to be what others have articulated as war fatigue, that there would be the initial shock and then it would just become an everyday part of our reality and it would not make the headlines. People would not be as interested in what is going on and that interest and thus support would decline for Ukraine. But Obviously, I'm coming at this from the perspective of a journalist. We have not seen that. I mean, the interest in this war, the understanding of this war has only increased as far as we are concerned. I don't just mean the podcast and the listeners that we've had, which, of course, is only a minuscule part of what's going on as a consequence of this war. But also in terms of the journalism we produce, the articles we publish, there is, I would argue, more interest, more understanding in Ukraine and what has happened now than there was when the war began. And so I think that this, even though there are issues about how this war is perceived and misunderstandings, I've lost count of the number of times people have said to me, why is the counteroffensive not working? You know, so people are following it, but they're not necessarily sort of following it in, in the way that perhaps we would hope. But they are still following it. They are still hugely engaged and they know what is at stake here. So I, I, I just wanted to agree with you on that. Now, you mentioned NATO, Aliona. Of course, their role in this is absolutely vital. We've got an upcoming summit, which is going to be another important one. What do you expect to come out of that? I think the expectations are quite high, Francis, on, on the Ukrainian side. Obviously, we all remember 2008 NATO summit in Romania that sadly, has resulted into two wars that we are seeing now in Eurasia, one in Georgia, and the second one in Ukraine, right after Georgia and Ukraine were denied membership action plan to enter NATO. Putin has started his war in beta Georgia, occupied 20% of its territory, which is still under Russian control that summer and then in 2014 ukraine was the second one to go still fighting this battle to this day we do hope that 
NATO will certainly rethink its position towards Ukraine because, of course, Ukraine strives for NATO membership. That is the only viable and tangible security guarantee that we could possibly have. And just to reiterate, and I, I want to make this as clear as possible because many people fear that if Ukraine enters NATO, then that will result directly into NATO's war with Russia. And that is very short distance from the Third World War. One thing to understand is if Ukraine is a member of NATO, there will be no war. Russia is irrational. It's drunk with its aggression and, and neo-fascism, neo-Nazism, xenophobia and everything else that currently pervades within the Russian authorities and, and the regime. But they are certainly not suicidal and their sense of self-preservation prevails. We can see that with all authoritarian regimes. They fear the most for their own safety lives. We've seen that with bunkers during COVID. We've seen that with bunkers during this war, the long tables, etc. Putin is a coward and he's scared for his own safety. He definitely understands that if Ukraine is in NATO, and that's essentially why he invaded Ukraine in 2014, to stop Ukraine after the revolution of dignity for assimilating into the Western society. We, the main reason for that, if you remember, that was EU association agreement with Ukraine. And obviously that would go into further Euro-Atlantic integration of Ukraine, possibly resulting into NATO membership. That's why he invaded, to stop us from doing that. Now, if Ukraine was a member of NATO, he would never have touched a piece of land of Ukraine because he knows that he cannot withstand the attack of, of NATO. He can't face the whole alliance that he would need to face. And we can now see that through the state of the Russian army. Perhaps before there was a perception that Russia is God's second most powerful army in the world. I think we now know everything about the state of Russian army. And I love Secretary Blinken's joke about it, about being the second most powerful army in, in Ukraine. So that's all said and done. And we are, of course, not expecting that NATO will open its arms and accept country at war into its alliance. We're not expect, ex expecting to become a NATO member right there and then in July. But certainly the pathway needs to be set out. I think membership action plan is the very least uh, that Ukraine can receive um, and certainly security guarantees. Now, there are many divisions about those as well. I hear now that some people, especially the US representatives, are talking about security commitments. That's a new word that's come into play. We've already seen security assurances in the Budapest Memorandum. Now we're still not being promised guarantees. We're now looking at security commitments, which is very interesting. No one, of course, can specifically answer to that, what exactly those commitments imply, what do they include. But there we go again. I understand the world's attempt to preserve peace. I understand the need to be pragmatic, rational and sane, because we are truly in a very dangerous zone right now with all the escalations happening across the world. Indo-Pacific is escalating on daily basis. Ukraine and Russia war, it, it certainly changed the whole scope of situation in Europe and, and how it's affecting international world order. But one thing I do want the audience to understand that the security guarantees 
perhaps similar to the Finnish security guarantees that they got on their way towards NATO accession. Something close to that, or maybe I think the, the Czech president mentioned security guarantees close to what Israel has been promised or is is taking advantage of now. So any formation of that, I think Ukrainians are very open to discussing that, but also as soon as the war is over and the territorial integrity is reestablished in Ukraine and Ukraine is a sovereign successful nation with loads of investments through the reconstruction, we need to make sure that the Ukraine military complex is also integrated into the Euro-Atlantic community through NATO membership and that is, I truly believe, and not just because I'm Ukrainian, but also as, as a political expert who's been working in this field for 15 years now, I truly believe that that's the only way to peace, sustainable peace and security in Europe and potentially the rest of the world. Thank you, Aliona. I completely agree with you on the importance of the red lines of NATO and, and how significant that is for preventing Russia's imperialist ambitions. And I think we know that far more now than perhaps we recognise for many decades. But unfortunately, it's taken the tragedy of Ukraine to see that and to see the importance of those red lines. And I only wish we had more red lines on certain other fundamental issues. But listeners will already know my views on that. Now, Alion, this is a very sensitive subject, I know, but it's one that I've seen posited by several thinkers on who are following this war and, and political theorists and columnists, etc which is that if you, you talked about the security guarantees there, but then said that it would have to be part of Ukraine restoring its territorial integrity. If Ukraine were offered NATO, effectively NATO membership, albeit not NATO membership, but effectively with those kind of security guarantees that you had Britain, the United States, Germany, etc., saying that if Ukraine was invaded again, that we would go to war. If those guarantees were offered, but at the price of Russia keeping Crimea, do you think that is a price that Ukraine would be willing to pay? Francis, I think in in Ukrainian perspective, that would mean that the war has not ended, that there is perhaps a sustainable long-term ceasefire, that people will stop dying for now that the world will step in if Russia tries to grab some more Ukrainian land or comes up with the, uh, another provocation or sabotage or whatever else uh, they've been doing before. But I think as as long as Ukraine's territorial integrity is not restored and we still have that reminiscence in our in our psyche that we've been violated, the territory was taken, the Crimean Tatars who fled Crimea are still spread either all over Ukraine or were deported or were kidnapped or were murdered, that Russia has not fully appreciated the full scale of consequences for invading territory of another sovereign nation and still hasn't given absolutely everything back and more in the form of reparations. I'm afraid that feeling that Russia is still the enemy and is still purely recuperating, renewing its, replenishing its resources, including human resources and training up soldiers and planning any other way to undermine Ukraine in any hybrid warfare way possible. I think in, in Ukraine's minds, that war will, will never be finished. We could see that in Moldova, whose development stalled because of Transnistria for 30 years. We can see that 
in Georgia who can't move on and keeps backsliding into authoritarian tendencies and leaning towards Russia. And what will it say to the rest of the world? What will it say to states like China, to other territorial conflicts where there are certain disputes and people have various views on who should be in charge of which territory? What kind of precedent is that setting for the new world order? I don't really think it's, it's a positive or a liable one, honestly. Well, we've spoken a lot about this both on and off air, and I completely agree with you on that. But I do think it's going to be a major sticking point when those kind of decisions are being made, whether that be months or years time, because evidently there are certain countries that view Crimea as negotiable. And until that shifts, until there is a profound understanding about the significance of Crimea, General Ben Hodges, of course, who was, I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, he described it as a dagger in the heart of Ukraine. Until that misconception, if I can articulate it in that way, is uh, more greatly understood, then I think that there will be bigger issues to come and big stumbling blocks in the sort of diplomatic field. But, Aliona, we're running a little bit short of time, so I just wanted to ask you one other question, which is the UK is jointly with Ukraine hosting the International Ukraine Recovery Conference in London next week, and Ukrainians are arriving in London now. I imagine you're in contact with many of them. What should we expect from this major conference and what do you think are going to be the major subjects of conversation there? Yes, actually, Ukrainians are already in coming into London and it's very interesting to meet so many people who I knew before, members of parliament, ministers, deputy ministers, some new people that are quite brave and inspiring, like mayors of occupied cities and towns who are also here now. And there was an, a Ukrainian event last night that I attended and then dinner with mayors of, of those occupied or formerly occupied territories. And it's it's really inspiring to see how they're coping, how they're withstanding that, especially being a mayor of a town that's still under Russian control and still advocating for its recovery, speed return home, caring about people, caring about infrastructure projects and security, securing funding. That is something that perhaps would also answer your previous question about Crimea. People are not giving up. We want everyone and everything back home because that's that's where they belong and that's where people want, want to, to live. What to expect from the Ukraine Recovery Conference? It's certainly a, a very big and very important platform that will be perhaps somewhat of a declarative nature. I'm sure many declarations will be made, some agreements and MOUs will be signed. I know that big businesses will be urged to sign Ukraine Business Compact, an agreement to look at Ukraine to look at reconstruction opportunities, get involved in various industries. But it's very important to set out concrete goals. And I think it's it was it's very reassuring to hear, for example, from the officials from Department of Business and Trade and Foreign Commonwealth Development Office, that they are looking at concrete mechanisms, perhaps even a platform that I can't really disclose now because that's going to be announced at the conference, but there will be a platform that will allow to align and connect businesses, constructors, and, and people who have certain knowledge in various fields with concrete projects, not just industries, perhaps even cities, reconstructing full cities. And, and similarly to Bucha, for example, all the way up to Hostomel, the way, the way Britain did with UCAF mining. So several bridges and roads were already rebuilt very quickly in Bucha, and we have the UK to thank for that. 
So I think all of those decisions will be very important. I think the most important thing will come, of course, when the time comes to implement them. This will be a big forum where many people can meet, brainstorm, where Ukrainians will come with their opinions, requests, views, and even ask for some guidance, because that's what I heard last night, meeting some people. And where British officials, international representations, big businesses of this world, global corporate enterprises, where they can look at what is being discussed, what is in the table, and where they think they can provide support to the Ukrainian nation, to Ukrainian people, rebuild not just quickly, perhaps similar to the way Europe was rebuilt after the Second World War, but rebuilt in a more efficient way, get rid of many Soviet practices, buildings, projects, infrastructure projects, and build things greener in a more sustainable way, according to the ESG standards. So it could be a very exciting, bright future for Ukraine if certain right decisions are made, the right people are connected, there is a will, and there are, of course, finances to implement all of that. Aliona, is there anything that we haven't discussed today? Because as I say, it has been a while since you've been on the podcast that's on your mind that may not be on ours. A very interesting point, which I think the world is right to not pay too much attention to that, but it's worth connecting the dots and seeing the pattern. So, President of of Belarus, self-proclaimed president, shall I say, Lukashenko, announced yesterday that they are now hosting Russian nuclear weapons on their territory in Belarus. That comes briefly after their romantic breakfast. I don't know if you saw that photo on the internet. The second day after the destruction of Kahovka Dam, where Lukashenko came to visit Putin in his dacha in in Sochi, his summer residence, and they had this lovely spread of summer berries, just the two of them sitting on the balcony, perfectly white tablecloth, and it, it did look extremely romantic and lovely. And they were discussing exactly that, nuclear weapons. It's you, you couldn't make that up, really. So he just announced that the weapons are already on Belarus soil. Now, I don't think that that means that any threats could potentially come towards Poland or Lithuania or the, the Gotland Island that's being carefully guarded by NATO troops. It's definitely fear-mongering and saber-rattling as per usual, and now Belarus is directly involved. But the important thing that I would like to draw to your audience attention is that they did meet up and had that romantic breakfast on the right after Kahovka Dam explosion and right after seeing that there was very vague and uncertain reaction, this ambiguity reminiscent of the beginning days of this war from the West, when no one was saying who did it, that it's too soon to say whether it was Russia, that Ukraine is saying this, Russia is saying that. We were back to basically 2014, well, whose Crimea is and whose referendum is the legitimate one and what can be done and we need to investigate further. So right after that, Putin, having seen the weakness yet again and the lack of perhaps belief in Ukraine, he decided to push forward with his further threats because clearly with blowing up Kahovka Dam, it's it's clear that he's not ready to deploy nuclear weapons being full strike or tactical strikes on Ukraine territory. He was never prepared to do that. As soon as he saw that there was no reaction to Kahovka Dam and there was no strong messages towards him, he decided to deploy his saber 
rattling techniques even further. And he is now still trying to pose as this mighty nuclear power of the world. That only proves that Russia only understands strength uh, and the world needs to act strongly towards it. No need to, as I've said, react too strongly to that. There will be no nuclear strikes coming out of Russia or Belarus towards Europe or Ukraine for that matter. But I think it's worth seeing that as soon as the West weakens its reaction, Russia reinforces its threats. Thanks, Aliona. Now, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. An update from our roving reporter, David Knowles, as he makes his way from London to Ukraine via convoy. David, hopefully you can hear me all right. We left you yesterday after one of the trucks had broken down in Germany. It didn't sound like you were one of those getting your hands dirty. But are the bonnets still up or are you on the move again? Hi, Francis. Yes. So the upshot is one of the cars did break down. Uh, That's been left in Germany. It's going to be fixed. And when the volunteers come out here again, they're going to take it back over the border. So it's for the next trip. The other one that was playing up, thanks to the thanks to the kindness of a wonderful German mechanic who stayed long after his shift had ended and the uh, the genius of two of the volunteers here, uh, they managed to get it up and working again. It seems like it's humming fine. And yeah, we're across the border now, heading 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 into Ukraine. So uh, it was not as catastrophic as, as it might have seemed this maybe this point yesterday. So So I think some good news. Thanks, David. Glad you're making progress. Out of interest, the closer you've got geographically to Ukraine, have you seen more tangible signs of this war? We know, for instance, just how many refugees have travelled to Poland, for instance. Did you get a sense of that? Yeah, it's an interesting question and one that I've been thinking about, considering we've been obviously travelling towards Ukraine across Europe the past few days. Um, so funnily enough, I've got with me a book which the, sort of the original dispatches of Winston Churchill have been brought together by an editor in the 70s. And it's Churchill originally was a journalist with many things, but you know he was a journalist, he went to India, uh, he was a war correspondent, funnily enough, often for the Daily Telegraph. And he wrote the very, very first line, chapter one, Malakand, 3rd of September. So this is, I'm just looking now, this is 6th of October, 6th of December, 1897, the northwest frontier for the Daily Telegraph. He wrote, as the correspondent approaches the theatre of war, he will naturally endeavour to observe every sign along the lines of communications, which indicates an unusual state of affairs. And he goes on to describe what he sees, he sees in in British India, um, as it was back then. So... Okay, so what have we seen? I guess the first sign I saw was a sign going into Dresden. Obviously, Dresden, the city where Vladimir Putin was a KGB agent for many years, a sign uh, was sort of scrawled graffiti on a bridge as we go, go sort of past Dresden saying in German, Putin, Putin should die. And that's maybe the first thing we saw. Around Dresden going through Poland, it becomes more... I mean, one really nice thing actually was getting closer to the Ukrainian border and seeing storks flying. And it, when you're in Ukraine, storks live often live on the sort of the, the pylons beside some of the major the major roads uh, and it's a huge thing as, as you see them as you drive into Kiev or wherever you see the storks flying above and the storks nesting there and they're absolutely huge nests and so it's absolutely it's lovely to see them again you feel like you're getting closer as you get closer to the Ukrainian border on the Polish side you do see columns of trucks coming out uh, we saw we think we saw one sort of tank a tank transporter vehicle without without tank coming out of Poland. Another thing you observe, which is not war related, but the churches really start to pop out of the landscape. The further east you get into 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 Poland and now into Ukraine as well, you know the, the church often in some of these villages and towns is e- easily the most beautiful. Well, they are just absolute jewels of, of buildings that you can see at the border itself. So I'm actually 
recording this standing just on the Ukrainian side of the border. So we are through passports that have been checked and stamped. People are smiling. We've, we've got all of our equipment across, ready to head to our next destination. And yeah, you can see a long line of cars coming through, lots of civilians coming back. We've seen several coach loads of people coming in, lots of women and children. And I understand you've got a listener question. Do these people, do these people on this trip consider themselves people of action? And if they didn't beforehand, uh, what changed? Why are they here? So I did, I did ask around. Uh, I got a few quotes. One is, I just had to. Um, we just had to do it. And actually, it's quite difficult to get the British volunteers to necessarily go that deep about this, because for them, it's a, a fundamental... If I, oh, I think we're off. OK, I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that. We are now heading to our next destination. We're through the Ukrainian border. I hope you're all well in London. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. A few minutes later, David sent us his final thoughts on the road. So just very quickly, my final thoughts. We are over the border. We're in country now, heading to our next destination in Ukraine. The most striking thing that we've seen so far has been a cemetery on our right, just a normal cemetery for the, for the village that we were passing through. And of course, there were four fresh graves with Ukrainian flags and fresh flowers. So the fighting might be hundreds of miles away in the east, but it still touches communities out here. Obviously, we've talked quite a lot about Ukrainian culture, literature, poetry, uh, music and more on the podcast. Passing those four graves in the village, I was reminded of the words of Tara Shevchenko, one of the, the greatest, if not the greatest, Ukrainian poets. When I am dead, bury me in my beloved Ukraine, my tomb upon a grave mount high amid the spreading plain. Thank you very much for listening and we'll be back tomorrow. Thank you, David. Safe travels. Aliona, thank you again for your time today. I'll leave you with the very final thoughts for today's episode. Thank you, Francis. It, it was a pleasure to go in depth into some of the topics, especially because, as, as you've said, I haven't been present for a week or two, so there was a lot of built-up happening. I think the most important thing to look towards right now, obviously, the events in London next week, the Ukraine Recovery Conference, some decisions that will be made, but that is more looking towards the future when the time comes to actually rebuild Ukraine. Um, as British government loves to say, build back better. So we might be seeing that. In terms of the more tangible results that we could see immediately, I think today's meeting of defence ministers of NATO is extremely important and interesting to watch. Many of the defence companies are present at that meeting too, and the huge decision will be made, or is being made right now as we speak, about effectively the rearmament of Europe, as I've said, many defense companies are there, the ones who are already providing weapons to Ukraine or producing them for the governments to provide them. I think there will be many talks about future contracts, be it ammunition, drones. I think the artificial intelligence is extremely high on the agenda with a strong and very prompt progression of drones manufacture and all kind of drones. I was actually at the Swiss embassy last night, the Swiss-UK business hub celebration, and the production of weapons and drones, among other things, was also on the table. That is something that's very active in Europe and very interesting to watch. Of course, the diplomatic front and security commitments versus guarantees that will be discussed at the NATO summit in July will be extremely interesting to see. I do hear from some friends in the United States that there is a bill that they're looking to pass as well to reinforce those security guarantees for Ukraine, perhaps to make some amendments to old bills that were already registered in American Parliament. 
So it's all shaping up nicely. I think the only thing we need to focus on now is effectively how we fight this war. Remember about the heroes that are still defending the eastern flank of Europe and keep them in, in your minds and in your hearts as much as you can. And you mentioned earlier, Francis, the compassion fatigue, that there is no such thing. And if anything, that compassion towards Ukraine and the interest for the war only rose. I do get mixed feedback sometimes being Ukrainian, living in London, working in London. Sometimes I get questions like, it's already been a year, shouldn't you just move on? Or it's time to, to refocus because that war, who knows how long it's going to last for. I do want to reiterate that speaking to some bodies within the government and the civil society bodies who work specifically on disinformation in Europe and in the UK, they do say that compassion fatigue is one of the Russian propaganda narratives that is being actively spread. So let's not all buy into it. You, Francis, I'm sure are on the right side of history and see enough of these narratives floating around in the media, that being your expertise how they try to affect the audience. And I appreciate strongly that the, the Telegraph's daily podcast debunks many myths, especially the compassion fatigue one every day. So I will end on that note by thanking you and thanking the whole team at Telegraph and your audience and listeners for tuning in every day and caring and supporting Ukraine. Because at the end of the day, it's not just about global security and the future of international world order. It's, it's about the people who we love, the people who we care for, who we are praying every day for as well. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear with executive producers David Knowles and Louisa Wells. <laughs>